Let's read God's Word from Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We'll stop there for the moment. Here's our theme for today. Hopefully you can see it as we go through the text, that God condemns ungodliness, but He rewards godliness. We're going to see three things. They all have to do with the letter G. So we'll see how God grieves. We see that in verse 6. It said that He grieved Him to His heart. But we will also see God's grace. And then we will see how God's guidance is overseeing and ruling through this whole situation. So we'll see God's grief, His grace, and His guidance in all of this, we we don't want to lose sight of God's grace. And and here's how it applies to you and me, by the way, that God's grace is is more than sufficient to enable you and me to live a godly life even during ungodly times. These were ungodly times. You and I live in ungodly times, similar to Noah's day, and so there is some good application here for us. But first of all, let's see... God's grief. Why is God grieving? By the way, same things God grieves for our culture today. You'll see some similarities. And they all, by the way, I don't normally do this because it creates a lot of extra work trying to come up with the same letters. It's actually quite difficult. And even using thesauruses, I found it incredibly helpful. So if if you like alliteration, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this very often. This might be a one-off. But um, we see, first of all, that mankind's wickedness is intense here. Intense. Look at verse 5. Because you see this in the word great. Yahweh saw how the wickedness of man was great. What a comparison, a contrast, if you will, to Genesis 1, verse 31, where the Bible says that God saw everything that He had made, and He says, behold, it was very good. But it's no longer very good. 
Now we have the invasion of sin since Genesis 3, and it brings the world from the goodness of God. It is now, we, what do we see? The wickedness of mankind. This shows how sin is corrupting everything. Not just corrupting man, it has it is, it is even affected God's creation. Romans 8 says His creation is groaning. Groaning under the curse of sin, waiting for the day of redemption. And this word great here, by the way, describes two things. Think of it this way. It's describing both a multiple as well as a masterful violence in this culture. It is multiple and masterful. It is great in that sense. And the idea here, there was an intensity to mankind's wickedness. Number two, mankind's wickedness is inward. Notice verse 5 describes it, uh, mentioning every intention of the thoughts. (laughs) Every intention of mankind's thoughts is wicked here. That word intention in your Bible is the potter's word. When a potter would sit down and take clay, wet, moldable clay, and he would form that clay. That's the idea in that word intention. Mankind here is like a potter who is purposefully fashioning wicked philosophies, purposely fashioning and making obscene artifacts and living for immoral causes and pouring society into its corrupt mold. That's what it's doing here. And notice the text mentions the intention as well as the word heart. In verse 5, this means that Mankind's intellectual abilities and his spiritual nature are corrupted so that he becomes skilled, skilled in forming and devising evil plans and activities. He's not just doing him, he's now an expert (laughs) at forming and devising evil plans and activities. So sin here, the idea is, is not just something that mankind does. Sin is is a deep-rooted spiritual infection which touches and taints everything. It's tainting the very personality of mankind. So no longer can we look at mankind as and see a spark of divinity within them. Yes, they're still made in God's image. Yes, that's true, but there's no spark of divinity any longer. Mankind is... Wickedness is inward. Number three, mankind's wickedness is iniquitous. Notice the word iniquity in the word iniquitous. The idea in verse 5 is, you see the words only evil. Only evil. God knows. He knows. The word evil there, by the way, describes something that's deformed. It's noxious. It's hurtful. It's related to the root meaning to be noisy and thunderous. In other words, what God's saying here, mankind's evil was noisy unbelief. It means that unbelieving evil is something that's not just passive. It's active. It's no longer private, but it is public. It's no longer silent, but it's shouting. It's not something that's shy. It's bold. It's no longer respectful. It is disrespectful. The point that God's making here is that the evil of mankind is both poisonous and boisterous. 
It's no longer like, for example, just to, just so you can see that in our own culture, for example. See, you know, you, we have, we now have gay pride parades, right? It's in your face. It's poisonous and boisterous. It's not hiding off in the shadows any longer. It's out in public. In fact, it's now law. And you discriminate against those kind of people if you don't accept their chosen lifestyles. Can you see how it's now? It's poisonous and boisterous. Only evil continually. And number four, mankind's wickedness is incessant. Because notice the word in your Bible there. It is continually. Continually. In other words, the word only in your Bible has the idea of this. It's exclusive. But the word continually means it's extensively doing this. Continually means it's all day, all day long, every moment of every day, every day of the year. It's 24-7. That's what it is. It's continual. You say, well, what's the point here? Well, Noah's day was infected and infatuated with evil. For them, it was a total obsession. It was incessant. And that's what you see in our day. People want to do what's right in their own eyes. Good becomes evil. Evil becomes good. Number five, mankind's wickedness is insulting. And here it's insulting to God because in verse six, notice God is grieved. That word grieved means he is pierced. God is pierced like a sword going through his heart. God experienced heart-piercing sorrow as he's now looking upon his creatures who are involved in this idolatry. They don't want to worship him. They want God out of their life. And, and the devastation of sin is just destroying his creation. And they see him pushing, trying to push him away, and it grieves, it pierces his heart. It's insulting to God. And number six, mankind's wickedness is injurious. Because notice in verse seven, God talks about, I am going to blot them out. In other words, there's consequences to sin. And so when God says, I will blot out, he, he means I'm going to wipe out all the inhabitants on planet earth. Now, this is an interesting concept here in your Bible, because in accounting, this word was used of a proper fluid that would be applied to a, a parchment in order to completely erase an item on that paper. Now, here's the point, my friends. The fluid of the great flood is about to come upon the earth. And this fluid that God is going to use is going to erase a rebellious humanity from the face of the earth. And not just people, by the way. God's not just going to blot out this rebellious humanity. Notice the text here in verse 7 includes mankind. It includes the animals. It includes creeping things and birds. Do you see how sin affects everything? God's destruction here will be extensive. Why? Because the entire creation has been corrupted by Adam's sin. Number seven, 
Mankind's wickedness is immoral. It is immoral. Notice verse 11. You'll see the Bible mentions that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Not in their sight, but in God's sight it was corrupt or immoral. The word corrupt shows the moral condition of mankind from God's viewpoint here. Corrupt, by the way, means that it is marred, it is spoiled by the the rotting. It is laid waste, it is ruined, it is destroyed. And by the way, this is what has happened to mankind due to Adam's sin. We need to understand just how pervasive, how bad mankind and this earth is because of sin. And number eight, mankind's wickedness. Sorry if you don't know this word, but it's the only I word I could find. This is the problem when you try to match everything up with eyes. It is inimical. Inimical. The, the idea is there, closest idea I could get to that word in verse 11, that the earth was filled with violence. It was violent or inimical. The word inimical has the idea of that it's, it's hostile, it's violent. The word violence, by the way, shows the outward display of what was happening inside mankind. It, the inward part of man is coming out of them. Why are they doing this violence? Because inwardly, that's who they are. And this violence is a terrifying self-centeredness, by the way, which stops at nothing to have its way. People want their way. And, and we see this sort of thing happening around the world, don't we? Right? People want someone's farm, so they go and kill the farmers because they want the land. Or they like your shoes. you got cool shoes, so I'm going to kill you to take your shoes. Right? There's, there's, that's just the sort of violent stuff happening in our world today. And, and this is why God says He's grieving. And this is why God's judgment must fall on the earth. And by the way, remember, God's judgment will fall. But when you see God's judgment, what do you look for? You look for His grace. You look for His grace. So we see a grieving God here, but number two, we also see God's grace, even in the midst of of judgment. We have a man named Noah here who finds grace and favor in the eyes of God. Not because he is so awesome. It's not because of the awesomeness of Noah that he finds this grace, my friends. No. But what do we learn from Noah? How do we see God's grace in Noah's life? Number one, look at verse 8. Noah was forgiven. Noah was forgiven. The word grace, by the way, is just sheer, undeserved generosity from God. It is the free delivery of kindness upon one who has no claim upon the donor's bounty. There is no compensation by which you can purchase His grace. You don't have enough money or good works to earn it anyway. So don't waste your time. We have no right to ask God for His grace. There is no price that you could pay for it. We can't merit it, and neither can we purchase it. God freely bestows it. It's freely given by God. Notice the giving of grace here can be found in only one place. Verse 8, it is in the eyes of Yahweh. In the eyes of Yahweh. 
It is not a, a, a form of worship that you can do. It's not a ritual of religion which will serve as some, somehow it's a vehicle here into which you can be saved or you get the sustaining grace that comes to you. Nothing you can do. It comes from God Himself. The same way it came to Noah is the same way it comes to us. Noah, what does he do? He looks up into the face of Yahweh. He does it in faith alone. And what does Yahweh do? Yahweh looks down into the face of Noah and he bestows favor. He bestows grace. And it's in that moment that he's wrapped in this forgiving grace. Noah was forgiven by God. Not because he was sinless, not because he was perfect, not because he earned it. But God forgave him. Number two, Noah was faithful. Noah was a faithful man. We, we see in verse 9, it, it, he was a, it says he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And he walked with God. So how do we see his faithfulness? Notice in verse 9, number 1, God says that Noah was righteous. In other words, he was given a right standing before God. It's a, it's a term of, uh, of declaration where God declared Noah to have this right standing before him. And it belongs only to those who have been justified, those who have been declared righteous. And by the way, how was he justified? The same way everyone is justified, by faith. And that's why Noah shows up in Hebrews 11. By faith, it says. Number two, Noah was blameless. So he's, he's righteous and he's blameless. This shows that he is faithful. Blameless, by the way, means he is complete or whole. Complete or whole. It means that Noah was completely and wholeheartedly devoted to God and serving Him. Why else would the guy spend 120 years doing what he did? <laughs> by the way, it doesn't mean that he was flawless or sinless. It doesn't mean faithful in every part of his spiritual life. Of course, Noah was still a sinner. But on the whole, he was faithful. Noah was provided the power by God to live a godly life in a wicked world. That phrase, by the way, in your Bible, verse 9, in his generation, that phrase, in his generation, means that in the face of all Noah's contemporaries, and, and despite all of this peer pressure that was coming down on him to live an ungodly life, Noah doesn't give in. He gave himself sacrificially to God in his work. He was going to be anti-worldly. That's what it means that he was blameless. And number three, Noah walked with God, showing his faithfulness here. That phrase, walking with God, expresses an intimacy of relationship with God. When you walk with someone, you're, you're close to them, you're talking to them, you, you, know, you know them intimately. There's this close communion going on between Noah and God. His relationship with God was deeply personal. And that's the way you want to be. You want to have a deep, personal relationship and communion with God. And so Noah had that, and that shows that he was faithful. Number three, Noah was 
fruitful. He was fruitful. Look at verse 10. He was fruitful because he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jaspheth. And by the way, not only did he have three sons, but the fact that Noah's sons entered the ark with him is an indication that they too believed, just as Noah. They didn't have to get in the ark. Nobody made them get in the ark. right? Noah didn't chain them up and drag them in kicking and screaming. They walked in just like Noah did. By the way, there's a lesson here. The strongest influence on the life of a child, by the way, especially in a corrupt culture, is the faith of the parents. Noah could have said, you know, I can't help it, God. I mean, I live in a in a in a wicked, corrupt, evil, violent culture. I can't help it if my kids have walked away from you. A lot of parents make excuses. Noah didn't do that. He influenced his children in godly ways. He was a godly father. By the way, didn't just he wasn't just a preacher of righteousness. He obviously his example backed up what he said. We see a spiritual direction as well as a spiritual example. So his children too walked with God. So we see God grieving. We see God's grace in Noah's family, but we also see, number three, God's guidance. Starting in verse 13. Let's read God's Word. Starting in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. We see God's guidance in these matters. What does God specifically do? Number one, we see that God destroys the wicked. God destroys the wicked. There is a judgment day that will come upon all wicked. He's going, we, we see here he's going to destroy all life upon the earth except for Noah and his 
family. So there's eight people, eight people who are saved, and they are saved through that flood. Verse 17 tells us he's going to bring this flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die, except for those eight people and the animals that are on the ark. Now, it is highly debated, uh, and has been for some time now, that about the flood. Along with creation, the flood is another highly debated thing. And there's even some Christians who claim that this was a local flood. Let me give you at least four reasons why this is a worldwide flood. There's at least four reasons why this is a worldwide flood. Number one, verse 15 tells us the size of the ark. Now, God puts this in cubits. Uh, by the way, a cubit well, it depends on what you mean by cubit. Uh, the smallest known cubit, I think, it was 18 inches. Uh, basically, it was from the tip of your finger to your elbow. So people have different sized arms, right? But that, that, was, that was the smallest, 18 inches was a cubit. And so God tells you the size of the ark. It was not like most of the funny little pictures you might see that people have, funny ideas. You ever seen those ideas of the ark? You know, they got the giraffes sticking their necks out the windows, and, you know, it's these cute little boats. You know, no way they could get all the animals on those little teeny things. A lot of the, uh, the artwork on these days aren't accurate, of course. But you'll see a picture here, roughly, if you go by the small cubit of 18 inches, We've, we've got something that is 100,000 square feet of deck space. There is no way that was designed for a local flood. Uh, the, some of the largest ships in the world are these, these cruise liners that people sail around the world on. Massive, massive ships. Uh, the, you know, like the Queen Mary II and so forth. Huge ships. The ark was roughly about half that size, according to the biggest ships we have today. Uh, you'll see the uh, in the next picture here is is uh, the answers in Genesis and Creation Museum have have built a replica, spent millions of dollars doing it, but that's that's what they built. That's the idea of what they had it looking like. So if you go to Kentucky, USA. To the Creation Museum, you will see this huge ship sitting in kind of in the middle of a forest. It looks rather strange. But anyway, that's what they thought it looked like. Jonathan Serfardi, in his Genesis commentary, he says this, quote, Even the smallest cubit of 18 inches would, would result in an arc that was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, or... In meters, 138 meters by 23 meters by 14 meters. That is, the ark's volume would be about 44,400 cubic meters, or 1.5 million cubic feet. By comparison, in the USA, most commercial livestock transportation is on the semi or pot trailer. In the USA, a semi-trailer is 40 feet long and 8.5 feet wide and about 13 feet high and also has multiple decks. Its volume is thus 
4,420 uh, cubic feet. This means the arc has the equivalent volume of over 340 semi-trailers. In the U.S., the semi-trailer can legally haul about 22 U.S. tons. The trailers have multiple decks, so they can haul more animals. This means that a semi-trailer could haul the equivalent of 37 1,200-pound steers, or 90 50-pound calves, or 180 250-pound hogs, or 300 125-pound sheep. The ark could contain 102,000 sheep-sized animals. End quote. Next time we'll talk about probably, of course, most of the animals are smaller than a sheep. So you can see easily there's plenty of room for food and water and so forth. So the size of the ark, here's the point, my friends. The size of the ark alone shows this was not a local flood. This was a universal flood. And number two, why was this a worldwide flood? Because of the need of an ark. Think about it. Migration to a safe area is all that would have been needed if there was a local flood. Right? If all it was was a local flood. You don't, you don't need a huge spending all this time and years and years building this huge boat. And number three, the depth of the flood shows it was a worldwide flood because look at chapter 7, verse 19. Chapter 7, verse 19 says the, that the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So God is so generous, He provides enough space so the ark can't even bump into the mountains as it's going around, right? So no chance of even bumping into them, even the bottom of the ark and doing damage because it's even above the tallest mountain. So, it covered the highest mountains. By the way, we, we see that uh, the ark settles on somewhere around the mountains of Ararat. Now, I'm not saying that Mount Ararat, before the flood, was the same height as it is today, but today it is roughly 17,000 feet high. Uh, most people believe most of that height was, was uh, there after the came after the flood because of the volcano. And then uh, the fourth reason is the duration of the flood. The duration of the flood. Well, how long did the flood last? Look at chapter 7, verse 11. Because it tells you in the years of Noah how long it lasted. Verse 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the sixth month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Well, that's when it started. When did it end? Look at chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So you combine that together, you get one year and roughly ten days. Uh, because... Years back then weren't the same as today. But anyway, so you get roughly one year and ten days approximately. So the flood had to be a universal flood. There's no way it was a local flood. You ever heard of local floods lasting one year and ten days? Of course not. That's, that's silly. 
So it had to be really vast and deep for it to last one year and ten days. Anyway, so that's just some things for you to consider. So we see God's guidance here working through destroying all of this wickedness of mankind. But praise God, we again, we see His grace. In number two, He saves the righteous. God saves the righteous. He knows who they are. He loves them. He cares about them. How do we see God doing this? Number one, notice, my friends, that God communicates. God communicates here. Deliverance, by the way, always begins with a message from God. Why? We, we have to know what He wishes for us to do. That just doesn't come intuitively. God communicates what He wants you to do. And so God's very very precisely revealed plan for Noah's preservation is, is, is coming through His communication. How does He do that? Let me just point out a few things. In verses 14 to 21. No, first of all, we see God tells Noah the exact dimensions of this boat or this ark that he's to build. Right? It's supposed to be 138 meters long, 23 meters wide, 14 meters high. He doesn't have to guess. How, how, how big is this supposed to be? Because Noah, he doesn't have any idea what's going to really happen here. We also see in verse 14, the ark, God says, He even tells them what wood to choose. Now, gopher wood, as far as we know, there isn't a specific tree called gopher, as far as I know. And so the the best I understand from reading commentaries is it was either a a teak, a cedar, or a cypress tree that God told them to use, which, by the way, was very plentiful in the mountains of Armenia. And then in verse 16, God says the ark is to have uh, an 18-inch, one-cubit, 45-centimeter opening window that was running on the top of the vessel. Now, that's interesting. Why would God do that? Think about it. Think about eight people and all these animals on a boat for one year and ten days with no windows. Imagine what that would be like. And you think the zoo stinks. You think your farm stinks. And that's with open air. Imagine enclosing them in. So God, in His wisdom, gives them the ventilation, gives them the light that they need so they can survive. And by the way, verse 16, notice God says there's to be three decks. Three decks, plenty of space, not only for all the animals, but as well as food and water. And then in verse 21, Noah was told that what, what exactly God's going to do? How gracious of God to do that. There's this catastrophic flood that's going to come, but God says, I'm going to save you, Noah, and your family, plus all these animals. They're going to be taken in the ark, and then God says, bring in the provisions to provide for yourself as well as the animals. Oh, so verses 17 to 21, God tells them to do this. Plentiful, ample warning here to do that. And then in verse 18, God told Noah that he would establish his covenants with him. And, and what's God doing here, by the way, in verse 18? He's fulfilling the promise that he had made to Eve back in chapter 3, verse 15. Remember that covenant God said? There was a seed of the woman. See, if God had wiped out all of mankind 
his promise couldn't come true. How could he fulfill his promise if he destroys everybody? But no, God said there's going to be the seed of the woman who will come, and through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. So God's promise of salvation comes through the seed of the woman. So God, what is he doing here? He used Noah to construct this huge wooden boat, and upon completion, Noah is to bring his family inside, along with at least one male and one female, at least, of every animal. So what did, what did Noah do? So this is God's instruction. He's guiding Noah here. This is what you must do. How did Noah respond? What did Noah actually do? Well, we see in verse 22 that Noah obeys. Noah obeys. Don't you love verse 22? Yeah, I love verse 22. It says, Noah did this. In other words, he did all the instruction that God told him to do. He did all that God commanded him. Noah was completely obedient. <laughs> Which, by the way, is a reflection of his faith in God. True faith, by the way, True faith will always transmit this mental belief into a decisive act of truth. Mental belief carries out in your life. Intellectual conviction has to lead to a personal commitment. Otherwise, it's not real faith. So my friends, when God speaks, we must respond in complete obedience, just as Noah did. So, here's the point. You don't just... You know, let go and let God. You don't be passive. God tells you to do something, you do it. Right? You, you, you are completely obedient. There is something for you to do. Faith is never passive. You don't believe me? Read Hebrews 11. There's always something. Whenever you see those words, by faith, in Hebrews 11, notice the action that follows. There's always action that follows the faith. It's not passive sitting around doing nothing. Always active. So you, we, like Noah, have to cast ourselves upon God's prescribed solution here. So let me just give you a few implications to think about. What, what do we see here? Number one, that God must punish sin. He must punish sin. Is God holy or not? Is God distinguished from His creation or not? There has to be death to the old before he can establish the new. That's the way it is. God hates sin. He can't tolerate sin. He can't allow sin into heaven. And, and, and yet again, we see God punishing sin. And number two, God gives warnings, but eventually his patience ends and judgment comes. God is long-suffering, merciful, and patient. He gives the people of the earth a, a preacher of righteousness. Noah preaches. They're allowed this time to repent. But there comes a time when God says, that's enough. That's enough. Number three, God has always saved people in the same way. Now this is important, my friends. There are people who, who get, get a bit weird about this and say the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Oh no, same God. Same salvation, Noah's saved the same way that you're saved, which is through faith, by grace, 
in Christ alone. Salvation doesn't change. By grace, through faith. You look at verse 8. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. God bestows His grace upon him. That's the way it always is. And number four, true witness demands separation from sin. True separation demands separation from sin. See, the, the Bible says don't love the world, nor the things in the world, but rather we are to love God, of course, love His ways, His philosophies. What did Noah do? Lo, Noah's living in a corrupt, evil, violent world, but yet he is able to maintain his walk with God. Noah kept himself unspotted from the world. See, it's possible to be in the world and not of it, right? It's possible to be in this world and not have the same beliefs and philosophies and values that this world has. It is possible to be counter-cultural. And that is appropriate for a Christian. And number five, God, we see that God condemns the rebellion here, but rewards the separated saint. God rewards the separated saint. God says, be holy as he is holy. It means you are to be distinct. You, you are to be unique. You are to be separate from this world. Be the salt and light that you really are. Have an influence. So you can't have an influence if you're just like the world, can you? Be like Noah. Be different. <laughs> and number six, true faith leads to obedience. True faith leads to obedience. What did James, James put it this way? You show your faith by your works. You were created, Ephesians 2 says, you were created for good works. You're God's workmanship. Now, how do we see Noah's faith? There's at least three responses here we see Noah's faith, okay? In this part of the text, anyway. In verse 22, we see Noah building. Well, that took a lot of faith to build a big boat on dry land when they had never seen it rain, <laughs> right? Not least to the extent that uh, we do today. Remember, we had this massive boat parked on dry land, and it's, it's never rained in the way that we see it rained, but yet this is what God told him to do, and, and Noah goes and obeys. This is kind of, imagine, you're, if you're not getting the point here, imagine, imagine if you lived in the Sahara Desert. You live out there in the Sahara Desert, virtually no plants around you, right? And you start building a huge ship. Imagine what everybody would think of you. Building was an act of incredible faith. Noah knew that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. I, God says, I'm going to destroy everything. Be prepared. And that's what Noah did. And he builds this ark that shows his faith. We also see true faith leading to obedience through his preaching because... You don't need to look at the text, but in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it says that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. He is a preacher. What do all good preachers do? They 
They tell that people are sinners, that God's judgment is coming because of their sin, therefore repent. Come to God. Believe. Noah's faith was not only visible in the building, but you can see his faith working itself out in this verbal preaching. As a committed follower of Yahweh, he's truly concerned for lost humanity. Noah is not content to be saved and then to, to just save himself. He's concerned about his fellow human beings. So what did he, what's he doing? He's wanting to share the blessings with other people. And how do we see true faith leading to obedience? We see, later on, we see that Noah waited. Noah waited on the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. You'll see what I mean. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, For in seven days, God says, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. And then look at verse 10. And after seven days, seven days, notice seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So Noah obeys. Noah walks into the ark, and he, and he waits a whole seven days. <laughs> so he's sitting in this huge ship, and it's still not raining. I, I, could, I could just see all the people outside making fun of Noah. Hey, how's it going in there, Noah? Where's this rain? You know, why are you sitting in there? I could just see, the, I could just see all the jokes flying. But, but, but what is God doing? He's inviting Noah into the ark. He instructs him to come in. Leaves the door open. God's the one who closes it. For a whole seven days. Must have been strange getting into the ark. Here, here, in just dry land. Just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Which hasn't happened yet. But my friends, that is the essence of biblical faith. The essence of biblical faith is believing what God's word says. And acting upon it. Obeying it. Remember what Hebrews 11.1 1 says? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Noah had a conviction of things not seen. He had, he had a hope. He had an assurance, and he acts on that faith. So faith stands against what is seen at the moment. Faith believes what God has revealed in His Word. Faith is waiting. And in this case, it's waiting in a boat that is sitting in the middle of a desert because God said to do this. And despite of all the, the, the cynical attacks I'm sure he had during all those years of his, his preaching of righteousness, faith can anticipate, by the way. Remember what Hebrews 11 says? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So faith can see things, even though it's not seen by the visible eye. You know what I mean? Even though you can't see it with your physical eye, it can hope for something because God said so. So here's, here's three things to think about, my friends. Faith can anticipate three things about God. Number one, faith can anticipate God's presence. Faith understands that God is everywhere, and that God is with you and with me everywhere you go. 
Number two, faith anticipates God's power. That's amazing. A worldwide flood? That's never happened up to this point. (laughs) But faith anticipates God's going to do what He said. And number three, faith anticipates God's provision. God's provision. Wow, all this provision. (laughs) We could just think about all this. So let me ask you, my friends, what are you doing with your faith? See, we all have faith. Everybody has faith. The question is, what's the object of your faith? You're never going to have the right obedience. You're never going to do what God wants you to do if you have the wrong object. And then what do you do with it? Well, hopefully you're putting your faith in God, number one. Hopefully you're understanding who God is, that He is He's everywhere. He's, he's a great God. He's a good God. And that He's enabling you to live a godly life during ungodly times. Just as Noah did. Do you believe that you can do that? Or, or is there a hint of doubt somehow in your mind that, I can't do it! It's too hard! This world is too corrupt! It's too hard! I'm gonna give in to the temptation. I'm just surrounded by a bunch of unbelievers at work. You know, they're constantly doing ungodly things. I can't help it. Yes, you can. (laughs) You can help it. Just like Noah, you can live a godly life and be godly because God will give you His grace to enable you to live the godly life in ungodly times. Today is no more difficult than Noah's day. Do you believe that? Do you believe this? Where does your faith lie? Do you have this assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen? Believe who God is and obey. May God enable us to act on our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for a good example in your word, we've seen a lot of bad examples so far in Genesis already. We're thankful that Noah walked with you, that he had faith. You enabled him by your grace to live a godly life during difficult days. May we have this kind of faith, a faith that uh, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. May you enable us to obey you even though it is difficult, it is hard, it is, it is anti-cultural, anti-worldly. And we feel like the salmon swimming upstream going in, and the culture is just flying at us and hitting us, knocking us back. But may we persevere. Would you cause us to be godly by your grace? Would you cause us to be light and salt and to influence the people and the culture around us? May we do this, as your word says, be the light to the world, not for our own glory, but that the world would see our good works and give glory to you, our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.